Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 190 of the Necessary Roughness podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic. Hope you all enjoyed the little reprieve we got. You know, if you're a fan of the Pro Bowl shenanigans, or maybe you just use it as a week to cool off, cook up some crazy parlay bets. I've seen quite a few. Um, or just, you know, enjoy the NBA trade deadline or things of the sort. But in the immortal words of Bruce Buffer, it is time it is time for us to discuss the ending to the 2023-2024 NFL season. We are going to do our Super Bowl preview at the tail end of this episode. We'll go through some offseason shenanigans on our way there. We'll break it down in no time. We'll do this episode like we do all the others with my standout seven. Number one, we talked NFL awards last week. Let's break down the winners. We had Lamar Jackson winning the MVP, which was a far-gone conclusion. I gave my little diatribe about how I thought his stats may not have been at the level of what we've seen from some previous quarterback MVPs, and how I thought Christian McCaffrey should win it, but he did not. I then told you he'd win Offensive Player of the Year, which he did. Then we have our first mild debate. Defensive Player of the Year goes to Miles Garrett. Interesting to me. Um, I tend to think that the better year went to T.J. Watt, right, in terms of statistics. He's a previous winner of the Defensive Player of the Year. Obviously, his family's got a handful of those on a, a mantle in their mom and dad's house. But, I mean, more tackles, same number of forced fumbles. He's got five more sacks. He played one more game. Miles Garrett was not going to get five sacks in that concluding game. Um, How about this one for you? Miles Garrett down the stretch with the Cleveland Browns. Um, one sack in his final, if you include the playoff game, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven games. Um, you know, do with that information what you will. Three and a half sacks in a blowout over the Tennessee Titans. Um, like I said, I'm not one that thinks this award should pretty much only be the sack leader award, though it seems to be leaning that way, historically. Um, if you wanted to tell me, hey, well, Deron Bland set an all-time record, let's give him a nod. Okay. Um, I'm not of that opinion, but there's an argument there. I'm a little confused on how Miles Garrett walks away with this award. Admittedly, I think Miles Garrett's a great player, but... I shrug my shoulders and we'll move on. That brings us to Offensive Rookie of the Year. We all knew it was going to be C.J. Stroud. Um, I argued hard to the handful of us out here listening to the Necessary Roughness podcast, each and every one of you I appreciate, by the way, that the obvious answer to me was co-winners. We should have C.J. Stroud honored and appreciated for his historic rookie year as a QB, leading a team to the postseason, and we should also honor and respect what Puka Nakua did as a, you know, unexpected rising star, superstar, if you want to go to that level based on his performance. I mean, the guy looked tremendous. Is it, do you want to make me an argument that it's scheme? That maybe Sean McVay and Matt Stafford can take a guy who's good at running routes and has decent hands and turn him into a star? Is that, are you going to tell me that that's what they did with Cooper Cup? I don't know. Uh, I'd call it an eye for talent in the meantime, but 
I just feel bad for Puka not being honored here. No knocks on CJ Stroud, though. He accomplished all that he could realistically, aside from a Lombardi trophy as a rookie QB. I understand it. I get it. I got no beef with it. Uh, Defensive rookie of the year. I was up in the air, if we're being honest. So I don't really hate the idea of it going to Will Anderson. Did I think he had a tremendous standout otherworldly year? Not really. Uh, I had Kobe Turner winning it for me, but that's okay. Um, I am a little shocked that the Comeback Player of the Year award did not go to DeMar Hamlin. It was another award that I think was a foregone conclusion, and then since it was a foregone conclusion for Vegas, very quickly we saw significant fan outcries that DeMar Hamlin simply hadn't done enough. That he had come back from one of, if not the most catastrophic moments injury-related in NFL history, and that's understandable, but in terms of performance on the field, he hadn't done enough for the fans, and, uh, well, the writers tend to agree, evidently. It comes out after the fact that, supposedly, DeMar Hamlin finished with 21 first-place votes. Joe Flacco got 13, but since it's a point system noted by... Ari Mayrov here, and reposted by John Boy Media Football. New, quote-unquote, point system, getting points for a first, second, and third place finish. Joe Flacco wound up with the win. I am not a fan of awards going to a person who didn't have the most first place votes. I understand the purpose of the point system, but just me. Um, Got no beef with Hamlin winning it. We discussed that last week. I got no beef with Flacco winning it. My only beef would be Flacco said he didn't even think he should be nominated, which is bizarre. But uh, congrats to Joe Flacco. And for the people out there commenting on these posts saying, hey, where's where's the love for Baker? Yeah, I agree with you. But all good. W for Joe Flacco. Intriguing to see Hamlin not come away with that one. Uh, Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, which is one we didn't really predict because I think it's hard to rate which one of these, you know, wealthy men giving back to their community is doing the most. I'm appreciative of all of them that are even nominated, and there are more than the 32 that are doing off-the-field things, which I think are commendable. That went to Cam Hayward of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, Big day for the Cleveland Browns. Coach of the Year, Kevin Stefanski, understandable. Uh, making the pivoted quarterback, losing your QB and your star running back in the same year, still making the playoffs. It's respectable. The blowout notwithstanding, this is a regular season award. Assistant coach of the year to Jim Schwartz, formerly of the Detroit Lions, now the D coordinator of the Cleveland Browns, or was rather, the D coordinator of the Cleveland Browns this past year. Wouldn't shock me if a few years down the road we saw him get another bite at the apple as a head coach. I said that about Spagnolo as well, and I stand by that. Um, Hall of Fame class. Finally, we will have Devin Hester inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. I understand the argument people may have that, well, first ballot Hall of Famer, what did he do offensively? You know, he came in as a corner. What did he do defensively? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have a real position, right? People get voted into the Pro Bowl as a return man. That's a real thing. We track records relating to kick and punt returns. He is the greatest return man in the history of the NFL. You want to give me an argument for Dante Hall? Sure, whatever, I don't care. But as upon his retirement, it seems to be a tremendous consensus that Devin Hester is the best return man of all time. 
therefore he should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, and now he is. Along with him, Dwight Freeney of the Colts, great pass rusher. Wide receiver Andre Johnson gets the nod over Antonio Gates, which, admit it now, I shouldn't say gets the nod over Antonio Gates, specifically to him. The other players on here, Broncos linebacker Randy Gratishar, Niners linebacker Patrick Willis, Bears D-lineman Steve McMichael, and Panthers D-lineman, Panthers and other teams, but listed as Panthers on Pro Football Network here, uh, Julius Peppers. The reason I say Andre Johnson got the nod over Antonio Gates is just, that's kind of the way I interpreted it when I was reading that, and I'm a little intrigued because, I mean, Gates had significantly more touchdowns. Gates played longer, right? Gates played more games. Um, and Andre Johnson, admittedly, I will tell you, was on awful teams in Houston. Awful teams. Um, him and Derek Carr, who was beaten, excuse me, David Carr, who was beaten into the ground, uh, not really given a chance to succeed as a rookie high draft pick. It could have been an even better career. I'll say that. I don't know. I think there's a fair argument both should be in. If I'm thinking all time, personally, I think Antonio Gates is higher on the all-time tight end rankings, for me, than Andre Johnson is as a receiver. Maybe that's partially due to the fact that we're kind of in the meat of the golden age of tight ends, as some people like to call it, right? We've seen the position completely change in terms of becoming a predominantly pass-catching position, and Gates was really one of the forerunners of that, I would say. Uh, not to call him an awful blocker, but when you're thinking of Antonio Gates, it's running routes and catching balls. And, you know, I think right now, you know, 10 years from now, maybe not. But as I sit right now, I think there's a better argument for Gates than Johnson, though I think they should both be in. So congratulations to Andre Johnson and the rest of the class. And I think Gates will get in in no time. Uh, we could look ahead to next year's Hall of Fame class, but admittedly, Really? I mean, why? We'll move on. Next up in the standout seven, number two, interesting notes from the NFL Players Association this week. I don't know if you guys heard about this, but I haven't really seen much about it aside from a handful of articles, and I think we should touch on it. Here's your headline from The Athletic. NFLPA wants the NFL to make concessions on playing surfaces and punishment for gambling. Interesting to me. So there's a new executive director of the NFLPA, Lloyd Howell. No more DeMora Smith. Um, he was speaking along with executive committee members J.C. Treader, Calais Campbell, Michael Thomas, um, not wide receiver Michael Thomas, that is, Brandon McManus, and Austin Eckler. And here's some interesting remarks they made about sports betting. Now, when you first read the headline, you're thinking... Maybe we just had the recent Kayshawn Boutte thing where, oh, he, he was betting on his team, right? Or Calvin Ridley, who I believe as well made some wagers involving NFL football, though I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. Um, Howell said, it's here and it's not going anywhere in regards to gambling. Calais Campbell, I feel like you know the rules are outdated. There was a time where it made sense, but with technology... You can bet on baseball or basketball on your phone. I don't understand why, if I'm in a locker room on a Wednesday, I can't pick up my phone and gamble. I understand protecting the integrity of the game. You don't want to put people in a compromised position. Nobody wants to have a guy betting on football. That is not okay. But you know, 
with technology the way it is, and you can tell exactly what people are betting on, and you know it has nothing to do with the integrity of our game, why not give us the opportunity to be able to make money when we're doing it as a league? Perfectly said. Perfectly said. Um, The concern would explicitly be gambling on NFL football, or even gambling on collegiate football. I have no beef with some random NFL player sitting in his locker, chopping it up, making a parlay on whether it be some early season NBA action, whether it be some postseason baseball, some hockey, some tennis. I have no beef with any of that. As long as it's nothing related to his performance on the field or something where he may have inside information, perhaps, it's completely fine. Completely fine. And uh, punishing a player for doing something which is being advertised ad nauseum with NFL logos and branding and, you know, during all sporting events, if we're being honest, especially, it's my one time an episode to mention as a New Yorker, it became legal here a few years ago and the advertising is everywhere. It's during all the games, it's before the games, it's on the radio shows with special codes and deals and promos. During the UFC events, if you're a fight fan, it's everywhere. So it's understandable to me that they'd want to be able to partake, and let's be honest, as long as it doesn't involve action where they may have an edge, or be willing to give an edge, I've got no beef with it. The issue might become, and obviously we're talking about betting in facilities, not even betting as a whole. Come on. Um, I tend to agree on that. The playing surfaces thing, this is going to go back and forth forever, right? We've seen the NFL multiple times say, hey, There's no major difference in terms of injury culpability if it's fake turf versus real grass. The injury rates are about the same. It just so happens to have been big-name players and things of that sort. Now, reasonably, considering the league has studied it, or at least said outwardly they've studied it, looking at that data should not be that hard um, to come to that conclusion. I'm not certain 100% if that data is published publicly, but if it's not, it should be, because realistically it would be an important factor in this conversation. Additionally, worth noting, World Cup coming to the U.S., there's going to be matches played at MetLife, and there's already a discussion over whether they're going to be playing on turf or there's going to be special considerations made for the best of the best in international football, considerations which are not made for the best of the best playing at MetLife Stadium in American football. Kind of an interesting situation to find yourself in, if you're the owners of the New York Giants and Jets, and an interesting situation to find yourself in if you play for those franchises or in those divisions. Um, Number three in the standout, seven. Let's talk about Stephon Diggs. And there was some drama revolving around an interview from the Pro Bowl, which I believe this was February 2nd. We didn't cover this in last week's episode, just didn't make the cut. We got a little bit of time this week. Uh, Cameron Wolf talking to Stephon Diggs about, you know, his play in Buffalo, his usage perhaps decreasing as the season went on, his relationship with Josh Allen, whether he believes he'll be back in Buffalo in 2024. Fans taking it one way or the other as it went on. Additionally, we have Buffalo Bills wide receiver Stephon Diggs talking on Up and Adams. More recently, this was Thursday of this week, uh, I got to keep it in the forefront of my brain that business is business. I like to proceed as such no matter what. 
also adding that he would like to retire as a Bill. Diggs, I'm not saying goodbye. I hope it's not goodbye. Like I said, I'm prepared whichever way it goes. When you hear a lot of rumors and such, it's like, where did it come from? You know what I'm saying? Where there's smoke, there's fire, usually. I try not to pay too much attention to it, and that's why I said I'll be fine where my feet are. Um, I think Stephon Diggs is a, a pretty darn good NFL receiver. I don't think anyone would necessarily argue that he is the best receiver in the league. I don't know if anyone would argue that he is still at his peak of his abilities. I'm not saying he's awful, right? But let's be realistic here. He's coming into his age 31 season as a wide receiver. You take a look at the leaders this past year in receiving yards, and he had a bit of a fall-off, which was discussed to the tail end of the season. Well, it's also worth noting that what happened at the tail end of the season? Well, the Buffalo Bills kind of went on a run. So, despite the fact that he finds himself at 1,183 yards, he finds himself 13th in the league. Unlucky number 13. Um, last 100-yard game came against the New York Giants in a game that they almost lost. Oh, by the way, at that point, he had had five 100-yard games out of the past six. Five out of six games. Um, you got... 34 yards against Denver in a loss, 27 yards against the Jets in a win, 24 yards against Kansas City, also in a win, 29 yards against the Chargers, 26 yards against New England. I mean, if you look at the number of targets, it's consistent. He had 160 targets this year. Last year he had 154. Last year he had almost 250 more receiving yards more touchdowns last year as well. So what it really comes down to is the catch percentage dropped a little bit, right? He still had over 100 grabs, and the receiving yards dipped to the tail end of the year. I'd say this to Stephon Diggs. I, when I think of trade rumors involving him, they almost all in, seem to hinge around comments made by either himself or his brother. I don't remember hearing, and perhaps I'm wrong, correct me if I am, uh, comment section, if where you're listening has one or social media, all social media, at Nick Donatic, N-I-K-D-O-N-A-D-I-C, they all seem to revolve around tweets or little weird offhanded remarks like the business is business one he made in this Up and Adams report, uh, or interview, I should say. It's just weird to me because I don't recall the Buffalo Bills front office or coaching staff or anyone with decision-making power in Buffalo coming out and saying, yeah, Stefan's phoning it in. Yeah, Stefan's just not good enough for us to take it to the next level. I don't think they've implied that. I don't think they've made that public if they feel that way. So I'm a little confused where the business is business approach is coming because I remember towards the tail end of the year, I believe we had tweets from his brother, Trayvon Diggs of the Cowboys, talking about how Stefan needs to get up out of there and things like that. Um... It's a little weird to me. I tend to think the Bills will not be moving on from Stephon Diggs. And every time you hear Josh Allen comment publicly, it's glowingly, for the most part, of his relationship with Stephon Diggs and how they're close and how he's helped take his career to the next level and things like that and yada, yada, yada. I don't know. 
I don't know. Where would they even go? Let's say they trade Stephon Diggs for, even if it's a second round pick, right? Which might be high for a 31-year-old wide receiver. I'm not sure how that would play out. Are they just going to go sign Mike Evans? Are you? Can you guarantee me Mike Evans, who's the same age, is going to put up better numbers? Because last year he had less catches, slightly more yards. And in terms of touchdowns, he had a handful more. This is true, but I'm not certain how that would fit. Why not go get Mike Evans in addition to the offense you have with Stephon Diggs? Or try and supplement it. I mean, you've got Kincaid and Knox at tight end, which is a great one-two punch. That might be part of the reason you saw a little bit of a a dip in production, so to speak, in terms of yardage and touchdowns, because in the red zone, who's better than throw to than your tight end? I don't know. Weird remarks. Weird news, as always, as we push towards off-season mode. Uh, number four on the standout seven. Let's go coaching carousel update yet again. We're getting towards the tail end of these, I promise. Coaching carousel news. We've got Cliff Kingsbury, who was, I believe last week I announced him as the Raider OC. It was seemingly a deal that was going to get done. Then he pulled himself from the running and made his way to Washington. This has implications because he worked at USC. Which of these teams may get the opportunity to acquire Caleb Williams? Does Caleb Williams want to work with Cliff Kingsbury? We'll find out. Uh, Shane Bowen is going to be the new New York Giants defensive coordinator, formerly the Tennessee Titans defensive coordinator. The Giants' old D.C. is reportedly finalizing a deal to be the University of Michigan defensive coordinator. Uh, speaking with Giants, speaking of, rather, Giants coaching staff, uh, Mike Kafka was promoted, though he's still the O.C., to assistant head coach. All right, cool, why not? Uh, Mike Zimmer, former Minnesota Vikings head coach, is going to be the Dallas Cowboys D.C. to start this season. I say to start this season because there's some pressure on that squad, and we'll see how it goes. Uh, and I also saw some news that Chad Johnson might be returning to the NFL sidelines, potentially as a coach for the Antonio Pierce coaching staff in Vegas. Not necessarily as a coordinator, I would say. Perhaps a wide receiver coach? Perhaps a Special assistant? I'm not sure. Didn't have a title announcement there, but Chad tweeted something about it, posted something about it publicly. Alrighty. Number five in the standout seven as we push towards our Super Bowl prediction. Let's talk some miscellaneous QB drama here, right? First things first, let's talk about Brian Urlacher, Chicago Bears legend and Hall of Famer, coming out and not exactly praising Justin Fields. Urlacher on if the Bears should keep Justin Fields. If people are still asking if Justin is the guy three years in, he's probably not the guy. Um, yeah, honestly, it's a pretty fair argument. I, I can't I can't argue with the Hall of Famer there. I saw plenty of people who are big Justin Fields fans online trying to take issue with this, and admittedly, I can't. Do I think... Here's the thing. You have the opportunity to pick any player in the NFL draft. So, if you are iffy on Justin Fields, this would be the time to take your shot at a Caleb Williams or Drake May, or if you believe Jim Harbaugh for some reason, uh, J.J. McCarthy out of Michigan. What? Okay, anyway, this would be your opportunity. I'd say this. Justin Fields coming off of a career-high completion percentage. He's still sitting at 61. Um... Career high in passing yards, 2,500 yards. 
career low in interceptions at nine, which is not bad. He was sacked 44 times. He averaged under 200 passing yards a game. Is he electric as a runner? Sure, but he ran for half of his total from last year. So how can you be more confident looking at those numbers moving forward? The defense of Justin Fields would be this. The arm talent, I think, is NFL starter quality. But, Kenny, is is it on him not making the reads? Is it on the offense? Because they didn't fire the head coach. Um, is it on the lack of receivers? Which has been true all three years of his career. He has not had a good receiving core. I think if you put Justin Fields in Gardner Minshew's shoes, they potentially could have gone even farther, right? They being the Indianapolis Colts. And, I mean, that's a good core, right? Anthony Richardson's going to get to play with that core next year. Would it shock you if he put up better numbers than Justin Fields did in terms of 16 touchdowns, 2,500 passing yards, 650 on the ground and four touchdowns? I get it. You're amazed with the athleticism, the pairing of the athleticism and his ability to play schoolyard football. And schoolyard football is fun to watch, but it's hard for me to say that Justin Fields is the right guy for the Bears. We talked about this, I think, on three different episodes. If you scrub through the titles moving back to the regular season, I'm going to be honest with you. I've seen more from Jordan Love this year in terms of making me confident that he's the guy moving forward for a franchise than I have from Justin Fields. There's more around Jordan Love. There's a better defense. There's a running game. There's an O-line. But their receiving core is a hodgepodge of young guys. Their receiving core is an elite. So he threw for 30 touchdowns. He threw for more yards than Justin Fields. Jordan Love in this one year showed me more than Daniel Jones has. So the same people that would go out there and rip and rip and rip the Giants for re-upping Daniel Jones, which I tend to agree with, right, in terms of both being injury-prone and not being productive as a quarterback, you're going to rip them, but you're going to say the Bears should keep Justin Fields? Neither one of them's putting up the sufficient numbers. Fields is putting up less turnovers than Jones did, sure, but neither one of them is leading teams to the postseason. So what are we doing? I tend to agree with Erlacher. The only thing I would say is, if you're going to do that, let's see what you can get on the market for Fields, because there's teams that want QBs. There's teams that'll be looking at Jordan, excuse me, at Justin Fields and saying, all right, well, I don't have the capital to trade up top five and get a Drake May and get a, you know, Caleb Williams, if he's going to be going to the Bears especially. But perhaps... I can make a deal for Justin Fields. Perhaps I can trade you some young players. Perhaps I can trade you some wide receiver talent or tight end talent. It's out there. Um, Let's see what they do. The other thing that comes into this is Justin Fields entering his fourth year. You're going to have to pay him sooner. In terms of giving a big contract, you are much closer to the big deal for Justin Fields than you would be for Caleb Williams or whichever rookie QB you tend to bring in. Or decide to bring in, I should say the economics of it makes it interesting because if you like the raw ball of clay that you have in fields, I get it. Let it roll and let's see what happens. But you got to be closer to the playoffs this coming year. I mean, as a starter in his career, the guy went two and eight, three and 12, five and eight. I know wins are not a QB stat, but he's not putting up the stats to make you think, 
oh, they're just barely losing these games. Like, just, just look it through. They play against Green Bay week one. He goes for 216, a touchdown and a pick. They play against Tampa Bay, 211, a touchdown and two picks. They play against Kansas City. They get utterly destroyed. 50% completion percentage. Doesn't even top 100 yards, a touchdown and a pick. They play Denver. He throws for four touchdowns and 335 and a loss. Okay, that's fair. That's a great game. That might be the best passing performance of his career. Washington, four touchdowns, 282. Okay, we're rolling. We're rolling. Next game, 6-10 against Minnesota. I believe he gets nicked up in that one. 58 yards and a pick. Against Detroit, he's under 200 again. They lose. Minnesota again, 217, no touchdowns, no picks. They put up 12 points. Like, I get it. They're not playing the easiest teams here that I'm talking about. But the ones that should be where he can put up his statistics are not coming through either. Game that they win against Arizona later in the year. 170 yards passing. But look, he ran for 97 on the ground. It's not doing it for me. It's not. Um, Especially considering, like I said, the rushing was down a fair amount from last year. I mean, 657 is nothing to scoff at for a QB. But it's just not there. If they want to stick with him, okay, it's going to be make or break. I can see it. I can see him becoming a productive NFL QB. I'm just saying I get where Erlacher is coming from. You've had three shots to prove it. Maybe it's time for them to move on. One more point in the miscellaneous QB drama section. Um, Jets owner Woody Johnson, for some reason, making remarks about how the Jets need a backup quarterback. Quote, we didn't have one last year. Um, Well, the guy that you had as a backup quarterback was supposed to be learning from your starting quarterback. That's your real problem. You didn't have a starting quarterback. There's your issue. QB went down with an Achilles injury a handful of plays into the season. That'll derail anybody. Um, good luck, Woody. Maybe you can get Ryan Fitzpatrick to come back. I, I don't know what his endgame was making those remarks. Anyway, number six in the standout seven. Before we touch on number seven, which will be our Super Bowl preview, let's talk a little bit about the legacy shenanigans, as I put it. Towards the tail end of last week's episode, I said, let's table our legacy discussion for next week. I said, we'll discuss it in two episodes. Well, I'm jumping the gun because I want to lay the foundation for what we're walking into here in under 48 hours in Las Vegas, Nevada. Well, some comments on Brock Purdy from Ryan Clark. Brock Purdy has separated himself from Dak Prescott, from Tua Tungavailoa, and Justin Herbert on Brock Purdy's NFC Championship game performance. If you were starting a team today, you, yes, you with the headphones, or maybe playing it through your car speaker, I don't know, would you pick any of those quarterbacks after Brock Purdy? You get to start your team. It doesn't matter the contract. It doesn't matter the age. You got to go win games, right? Are you telling me you are picking Brock Purdy over A, Dak Prescott, B, Tua Tungavailoa, or C, Justin Herbert. Dak Prescott, you want to talk about the turnovers? Fair enough. Sure. Dak Prescott is, in terms of talent, at the current juncture, a better quarterback than Brock Purdy. I think Brock is good. I think he's better than a game manager. I think he's got upside, right? Who knows? We might be looking at a guy with a Brady-esque arc here, right? It's entirely possible to me. It's definitely not impossible. Or... Well, 
It's not probable, but that's where we are. You want to talk about Tua? Okay. I think Tua is kind of overhated. Talk about Tua's got a lot of people around him. Got a, a very good supporting cast. So does Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy, I mean, they have a better a better core of star players at the least. Even on the O-line with somebody like Trent Williams, who's considered by a lot of people to be one of the best tackles in the NFL in the last decade plus. Uh, you have Bosa pass rushing on the other side. You've got Shanahan, who's already been to a Super Bowl, right? As a head coach and as a coordinator. Mm-hmm. Debo Samuel as a sort of, well, obviously more as a wide receiver now, but as an, a Weapon X sort of role. No? Um, Christian McCaffrey, the best running back in the NFL. I like Raheem Mostert. I like what he did for Miami. He's not Christian McCaffrey. I like Jalen Waddell, too. I like Waddle and Tyreek. You can you want to make the argument you like Waddle and Tyreek more than Debo and Ayuk? That's fair. Um, the tight end position? Who compares to George Kittle on Miami? Tua, like it or not, I mean, you want to say the driving engine of the Miami Dolphins was Tyreek Hill? That's completely fair. He's their best wide receiver. Who's throwing him the ball? Who's completing passes at nearly a 70% clip? For 4,600 yards. I mean, come on. Come on. The completion percentage is about the same. The touchdowns are about the same. We're talking 29 to 31, 11 picks to 14 picks. The numbers are comparable. That's fair. I think it's a a stretch. The Tua comp makes the most sense out of the three. I'll give you that one. I think Dak, Dak is above Purdy for me. Barring a Super Bowl performance. That's why I'm saying this is a something we had to table. If he goes out and throws for 275, 300, 315, and three touchdowns, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna debate it. I mean, it's the biggest game of the year, it's the biggest game of his life. If he goes out and has a tremendous game, that's fair enough. The Herbert one the Herbert one's peculiar for me. Cause Justin Herbert is very talented. But his teams haven't accomplished a darn thing. That being said, I'd probably take Herbert over Purdy. You're starting a team tomorrow. You need a QB. You don't know if you're going to have a good running back. You don't know if you're going to have good receivers. I'm taking Justin Herbert over Purdy. I'm probably taking Dak over Purdy. The 201, we can have a conversation. I might take Tua as well. Table that comment. Might look foolish in 48 hours, and we'll revisit it next weekend. Another one for you. Five-year stretch, the 2014-18 New England Patriots. Five division titles, five conference championship appearances, four Super Bowl appearances, three Super Bowl wins, a playoff record of 12-2, and and a total win-loss of 74-20. and If Andy Reid and the Kansas City Chiefs walk away with a W in under 48 hours, from 19-23, to the Chiefs will have Five division titles, that's a match. Five conference championship appearances, that's a match. Four Super Bowl appearances, that's a match. Three Super Bowl wins. 14-2 and two playoff record. More wins, more playoff games, you know the deal. And a 77-22 and 22 record over those five seasons. That is a dynasty. There were two Brady dynasties in New England, right? That's that's the discussion. Um, Yeah, this would be... 
on par in terms of team accomplishments to that Brady second dynasty, which is fascinating. Fascinating considering these are the first six years of Patrick Mahomes' career. So you tend to be inclined to compare it to the first Brady dynasty, right? The one where the team was more defensive carried, I would say, or defensive uh, inclined. The one that Belichick doesn't get enough credit for. Um, Or guys like Rodney Harrison, Teddy Bruschi and the like, you know what I mean? Richard Seymour. Neither here nor there. But we're talking about the potential of Brock Purdy rocketing up people's NFL rankings as a QB after he was being slandered, not but three weeks ago, after he was being thrown out with the bathwater after one bad game against the Baltimore Ravens, in which two of his interceptions were deflected and his team was barely losing at halftime. Hmm. The other side of the coin would be you are setting the stage for what could be a at least half career comparison between Patrick Mahomes and Tom Brady, the greatest quarterback of all time. One more thing here before we move on to the Super Bowl. Just a note that I saw earlier today, actually. Amazon Prime is going to have their own NFL playoff game next season. Exclusive U.S. rights to one game, according to Variety News, first reported by Wall Street Journal. Now, my question is, and it says, last year NBC Universal had first ever exclusive streaming rights to a playoff game. Does that mean we will not have a Peacock game again? Does that mean we will have a Peacock game and a Prime game? Or will it just be that extra playoff game is going to be auctioned off every year? I'm intrigued. Supposedly, according to Variety, under Amazon's agreement with the NFL, they had first dibs, is how it is phrased, on the NFL playoff game, which went to Peacock this past year, and they passed. Peacock paid a lot of money. Um... Peacock did not, quote, lose the rights to the playoff game next season, but rather Amazon earned it through performance triggers baked into the Thursday night football deal, a source familiar to the dealings tell Variety. Intriguing. Um, Worth noting, supposedly, the Chiefs-Dolphins playoff game averaged 23 million viewers, according to NBC Universal, on Peacock. Now, it's worth noting as well, A lot of people signed up for trial memberships. A lot of people may have went to the seven seas, so to speak, and caught it on some other websites, which are not so reputable or not so safe because they didn't want to do just that. Intriguing. A lot more people tend to have Amazon Prime than Peacock, according to, well, just me doing a ballpark guesstimate here. According to how much I see the Amazon Prime truck out front of my home. Anyway. That'll be the end just about of our standout seven as we get to number seven. The Super Bowl 58 breakdown. Need I remind you the beginning of the year I did not pick either of these teams. I have no allegiance to a past pick which will inevitably be inaccurate. Injury reports. The game, obviously. 6.30 p.m. Eastern. CBS, Nickelodeon, Paramount Plus, and Univision. Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. The San Francisco 49ers at the Kansas City Chiefs. Interesting. NFL.com listing Niners at Chiefs. But the Niners have the better record. Is this because it's an AFC-hosted... Not sure that's accurate. 
You know what? It's listed as that way everywhere. All right, you know what? Fair enough. Niners at Chiefs. Let's roll with it. Injury reports for the San Francisco 49ers listing just one questionable defensive lineman, Kalia Davis, with an ankle injury. The Chiefs got to be without Charles Omenahu, who tore his ACL. Also going to be without offensive lineman Joe Tooney with a pectoral injury and fellow O-lineman Prince Tega Wanogo with a quad injury. Omenihu and Tooney, huge injuries. Questionable and likely to try and make his return in this game. Uh, swing back, running back Jarek McKinnon, who has been pretty impactful usually when he's been on the field for the Kansas City Chiefs. Take a look back at Super Bowl 54. 49ers at Chiefs. Well, not at Chiefs. 49ers versus Chiefs. February 2nd, 2020, a month before things got wonky worldwide. Jimmy Garoppolo in this game, leading the Niners. Leading the Niners to what was a 20-10 lead at the end of the third quarter. They lost this game 31-20. Garoppolo, 20 of 31, 219, a touchdown, two picks, sacked just once. Leading rusher for the Niners, Raheem Mostert. 12 carries for 58 yards and a touchdown. Debo Samuel, 53 yards rushing and 39 yards receiving. One touchdown receiving for Kyle Juszczyk. On the other side, Patrick Mahomes, who did not play the best under the brightest lights. Patty Mahomes, 26 of 42, 286, two touchdowns, two picks, sacked four times, fumbled twice in this game, none lost. Also ran for 29 yards, some taken away from QB Neal's if memory serves. Their leading rusher, no longer with the team, Damian Williams, 17 carries for 104 yards and a touchdown. Leading receiver, no longer with the team. Tyreek Hill, nine catches on 16 targets for a buck 05, including a 44-yard bomb. Now, you might be thinking, which way are you leaning, Nick? You were super high on the 49ers for a lot of this season. Not so much on the Kansas City Chiefs, though they started rolling and the defense started going as the season went on like to remind you, let's take a look at another Super Bowl. Which Super Bowl? Oh, that's right, 57. Kansas City Chiefs against the Philadelphia Eagles. Who was leading that game after three quarters? The Philadelphia Eagles, 27-21. to Interesting. Patrick Mahomes' stat line in that game. 21 of 27, very efficient. Three touchdowns. 180 passing yards. Interesting. Very interesting. Leading rusher, Isaiah Pacheco. He will play a role in this game. Second leading rusher, Jarek McKinnon. Uh, Leading receiver was Travis Kelsey with 81 yards and a touchdown. Second leading receiver, no longer with the team again. Juju Smith-Schuster, seven catches for 53 yards. I think on paper, the San Francisco 49ers are the better team. I think if we do the classic position-by-position shenanigans, you'd have to give the QB to the Chiefs. It's Patrick Mahomes, multiple-time MVP, one of the best players in the league, a Hall of Fame trajectory after six years, right? However, 
running back. I like Isaiah Pacheco a lot. I do. More than most, probably. Christian McCaffrey's the best back in the league. Receiving core, we've been ripping the Chiefs receiving core all year. They've had a decent playoff run. They're nowhere near, like, Debo Samuel by himself is more intimidating than the bulk of their receiving core. Tight end, Kittle and Kelsey, I'd probably lean Kelsey, but it's close. It's very close. Call it a push. The offensive line, I'm not sure. Without Joe Tooney out there, I might lean San Francisco. The defense is where it gets spicy. Because Steve Spagnolo and this defense have kind of evolved past the reputation they have of, let's just blitz them, right? We're going to send a bunch of guys after you, and that's going to that's gonna be how it works. We're just going to blitz you, and either we're going to get there or we're not, and we're going to try and make a play on the back end. And don't get me wrong, there will be plays in this game where Steve Spagnolo, multiple-time champion as a defensive coordinator, will do just that. He will run the good old, I'm 10 years old and I'm playing defense on Madden and I need to stop. I'm going to blitz your quarterback. What are you going to do about it? And Brock Purdy doesn't have the elusiveness of a Lamar Jackson or even a Jalen Hurts. But it's worth noting. In last year's Super Bowl, the Chiefs only racked up two sacks against Jalen Hurts. Only racked up one sack against Jimmy Garoppolo. So when it comes down to it, sometimes it's more about applying the pressure and just trying to force a bad decision or make a play, you know, a play that was drawn out to be a shot play, turned into a check down, things of that sort. That might play a role. But I still think, on paper, San Francisco's firepower should be more than enough. And they should be able to walk away, putting a ring on the finger, of Kyle Shanahan and Brock Purdy and Christian McCaffrey, who Christian McCaffrey with a Super Bowl ring, another offensive player of the year, putting himself on a Hall of Fame trajectory of his own. Worth noting. You take a look at the career of Christian McCaffrey now, if they bring this one home. I thought he had a second offensive player of the year. Excuse me. One offensive player of the year, and the other year he just had a stupid amount of yardage. That's right, yeah. The 1,000-1,000 year plus 2,000 all scrimmage the year before, and he's on a Hall of Fame trajectory. Intriguing. So am I picking San Francisco? Well, we've had this conversation for years, and uh, considering Patrick Mahomes' age and the fact that Andy Reid doesn't seem to be going anywhere, I think we're going to be having this conversation for years to come. This is going to play out one of two ways. If talent wins out, and the 49ers go out there and take care of business, it's going to need to be some exercising of demons for Kyle Shanahan, who's blown two leads in two Super Bowls. And you're asking me to pick a team led by a guy who's had two teams blow significant leads. The first one, 28-3, obviously, and then he was out the door the next day, and the second one, a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl. Now, Garoppolo missed the throw. We all remember it. I get it. It still happened. So you want me to pick the guy that blew two leads against the team that made two comebacks. Sometimes it is really that simple. Part of me, probably the, uh, I don't know if it's the left or right hemisphere of the old noggin here, is telling me San Francisco's got more than enough, like I said before. And I don't think Kyle Shanahan is an incompetent coach. 
I don't think it is pure incompetence or bad strategy or whatever that is leading them to blow these games. I think Garoppolo makes one good throw, and they're probably Super Bowl champions. And you know what? I don't know if Brock Purdy's even leading this team right now. On the other side, there's something to be said for, as we push forward into very, very, very analytics-driven era, both in Major League Baseball, somewhat in the NBA, and somewhat in the NFL, sometimes the old-timer's way of thinking, which is they've got the championship medal, they've done it before, and you can hear the Howard Cosell voice or things like that, there is something to be said for they can win a big game. They can make a play when it counts. They just know how to do it. It just happens. It doesn't matter if it's Mahomes scrambling up the sideline with an ankle that's held together by duct tape and super glue. He's going to find a way to make the play. Do I know if Brock Purdy can do that? I just told you I think Brock Purdy... If he wins this game, will launch himself into that place Ryan Clark says he already is. Right? Then we'll have the conversation about Dak. I still think Herbert's better. But we can have the conversation about Tua. Where does he wind up in the top 10? Maybe we'll do a QB tier list in the offseason and it'll get controversial and things like that. But I've got to see it to believe it. Now, last week, I should say two weeks ago, we saw Brock Purdy not have a tremendous game, but. When push came to shove, the other team was, to borrow an M&M line, you know, vomiting up mom's spaghetti all over their sweater. So all they had to do was just keep the train rolling, keep the train rolling, and all of a sudden, 24-7 became 24-24, became you're going to Las Vegas. 267, all right. But he made some plays on the run. Five carries for 48 yards. That, to borrow the uh, <laughs> to borrow the Tony Romoism, that was a little Mahomey. It's always interesting to me to see quarterbacks who are often considered true blue pocket passers, which they are. But when the postseason comes, they're not that Peyton Manning statue standing there. They are ready and willing to show you just how athletic they can be if they need to bust it out a few times. That might put them over the edge. That might be what Purdy needs to do in a big moment to get around the corner and just get around just a little more, right? Maybe McCaffrey got knocked off his route. Maybe he stumbled a little bit. Maybe they got a little bit of a hold on George Kittle. Chiefs getting away with a hold? That never happens. But in all seriousness, that's the kind of playmaking I need to see. The problem, and this is where the cognitive dissonance lies for me, is... You're asking me to pick what might happen versus what I've already seen happen. And to get big picture on you, there's nothing more challenging, nothing more impossible, I should say, not even challenging, than getting a true prediction of human behavior, right? That's why I wrote a whole paper when I was in college, and if if anybody was interested, I'd send it to you, but I'm not sure you are, about how potential is the most dangerous thing. Being a sports fan, I think you all know that, right? It's the Justin Fields conversation we had before. It's the potential. It's look at his raw talent. Look at his athleticism. Look at how he throws the ball. That could be this. That could be this guy. Or it could not develop 
and you wind up wasting money and wasting time and wasting years, and everyone involved is out of a job. This is the question of this game. Am I picking based on what could happen? Could I see Christian McCaffrey going off on this Chiefs defense? Look, he's going to get his. I would be genuinely surprised if at the end of this game, Christian McCaffrey had under 100 all-purpose. I would be surprised. I would be shocked if he had under 100 all-purpose. I'd be surprised if he didn't get a touchdown. Maybe two. Right? That would surprise me. However, I would also be surprised if the Niners were able to make this Chiefs team look like the Buccaneers did. When they had significant injuries on their O-line, they were compromised, and they got the doors blown off them. I don't think it'll be that bad. Am I confident in the Chiefs receiving core? No. Not at all. Not whatsoever. But, I am confident in Patrick Mahomes. Andy Reid, Isaiah Pacheco, Travis Kelsey, Rasheed Rice, who has had flashes of number one wide receiver potential, to use that word again, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, and or Justin Watson trying to find a way to get over the defense. I think Richie James is good. He just doesn't get on the field for them. Sky Moore is supposedly going to be back, potentially. Will he make a play? He was an impact player in the Super Bowl against the Eagles. Right? Sky Moore, one one catch, four yards, touchdown. That did it. That's all they needed. Will we see them dare to throw Kadarius Tony on the field? Will Noah Gray make a big play when it matters? And I've mentioned it before when it came to Tom Brady. It comes down to picking against what I've already seen. And unfortunately, or fortunately, if you're a 49er fan, because it has not been my offseason. It has not been my postseason, excuse me. I'm going to go with the Chiefs. Everything is telling me the 49ers are the better team. I was saying all year, they're the best team in the NFC. Then they had their hiccup. They bounced back ferociously. Look. Sorry, Lion fan. That's all I'm going to say. You had them on the ropes. And they just came back. That's championship medal. But I said it on the episode two weeks ago, and I meant it, and I still think it to this day, the Lions lost that game more than the Niners won that game. Sometimes, however, you take a look back at the play, the deep ball caught by Brandon Ayuk, and sometimes you need the fluky. You need that fluke play. You need the ball to hit a weird bounce on the infield dirt, and it skips by the shortstop. You need a weird ball to bounce Kareem off the, the backboard or the rim, and oh, all of a sudden Chris Bosh catches it, and he tosses it into the corner to Ray Allen. What? Out of nowhere. Why isn't Tim Duncan on the floor? You need some kind of fluky. And if the 49ers are able to accomplish their ultimate goal and bring home the Lombardi, we'll be looking at that Brandon Ayuk play, if they don't have another one here, And we'll say that's the one that allowed this Super Bowl run to happen. Because that should have been an interception. That should have swung the momentum back Detroit's way. But it wasn't. And it never will be. It doesn't matter what it could have been. It doesn't matter what it should have been. It doesn't matter what it would have been. It matters what it was. And what it was is a lottery ticket you could cash in and take the San Francisco team to the mountaintop 
I think they're good enough to beat Kansas City, but I just don't think they take down Mahomes and Reed, the powerhouse that's been brewing. I think they complete the story, to use the Cody Rhodes motto, and they get their Brady trilogy here. Trilogy of championships. Like I said, it's real hard when you have two teams this good. Had the same problem last year when we had Chiefs-Eagles. I really did. You know what happened? I picked against Mahomes and I was wrong. It's interesting. I think this time I'm going to have to go with the Kansas City Chiefs. Worth noting. Worth noting as we look back. I was incorrect last year picking against the Chiefs. When I picked the Chiefs to beat Brady, I was wrong on that one too. So don't take my money to the bank at all. Though I was right on the first Chiefs Super Bowl against the Niners. And hopefully, for the pat on the back I'll give myself next episode, I'll be right this time as well. As I said, worst postseason in terms of picks for me in four seasons. Since 2020. Not a good one. Had a good one last year, year before. Let's see if I'm right on the Super Bowl this time, as I've got the Chiefs taking down the Niners once again to win Super Bowl 58. That'll bring us to the end of episode 190 of the Necessary Roughness podcast, presented by Last Word on Sports. Thanks for joining us. We've got one more episode, the Super Bowl recap episode, before we go monthly. We'll discuss the offseason schedule next week. I'll map it out for you as we talk trades, uh, free agency, the draft, and things all of that sort. Whether it's your first episode or your 190th, thank you for tuning in. You tuned in at a great time. Super Bowl preview, the big game. Hope you all have a tremendous Super Bowl Sunday. Either way, be sure to tune in next weekend where we'll recap Super Bowl 58. Hopefully it's a good one, folks. As always, I'm your host, Nicholas Donatic, signing off.